Let's go now to Exodus chapter 20. We are continuing our march through the Ten Commandments, the series that we've entitled Love and Obey. And this morning we have reached the Eighth Commandment that simply states, Do not steal. And so this morning we're going to consider what uh, that means for us. So before we go to God's Word, let's go to Him in prayer. Our great God, we thank You that You are true to Your Word. When Your Word is preached, it does not go out void. Father, the only thing I can do this morning, really, is to get in Your way. So help me not get in Your way. Would You use me? Oh God, we need our hearts to be softened. We need our minds to be trained. We need to be led to repentance by your Spirit. We need to be led to faith in Jesus by your Spirit. What we do here is not merely of human work, but we beg that you would come, for if you don't, what we do is pointless. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you do not leave us alone trying to figure out life on our own, but you have given us your word and you've given us commandments to show us how to live. So Lord, this morning I pray that you would apply this passage to all of our hearts and we would fall more deeply in love with you. And Father, maybe that there might be some in this room that would fall in love with you for the first time. Oh God, would you be so kind to make it so. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friday night, I had the privilege of uh, conducting the wedding service and worship service for A.D. and Sarah. They got uh, married Friday night, and they're on their honeymoon in Cancun today, and it was a glorious event. Um, And during that time, and during the homily, I do what, or I did what I do in practically every wedding, and that is put marriage in its place. Uh, Because all of us approach marriage wrongly, uh, because we are sinners, and we basically approach it as if it is going to save us. Uh, When we find that one true love, we build it so up in our hearts and minds that we believe that our spouse has the ability to do for us what only God can do. And that puts such pressure on marriage that it just simply can't last. And so I simply reminded them of the purpose of marriage. It is to give us a taste of the true marriage, the marriage that we were really made for, and that is to be married to God. Because all of history is moving toward that day when Christ will come in all of his glory and he will be presented to his bride, the church, and heaven will be a big wedding feast where we live with him in glory. And we have a taste of that for those whom God has given the gift of marriage. Well, what does that have to do with the Ten Commandments? As we approach the Ten Commandments, especially the last six, it's so tempting for us to disconnect the laws of the last six commandments from God, the very first four commandments. But we can't do that. If this morning we isolate, do not steal, from, you shall have no other gods before me. You were to make no graven images. You were to not take the Lord's name in vain. 
and you were to remember the Sabbath, if we remove the last six, especially the eighth, from the first four, then we're simply not going to understand what God has for us. Because when God tells us not to steal, something is implied there. Uh, We see this because just as God tells us, you shall have no other gods before me, Jesus said and clarified this first commandment as the greatest commandment in a very positive way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So it's not just do not, but it's do as well. And the ultimate commandment is love God. And so when you understand that, that I have been made to love God with all my heart, all my mind, all my soul, all my strength, and that's the only way that I'm truly going to be fulfilled and truly find satisfaction in life, then when we come to a commandment like do not steal, we need to be suspicious that there has to be something positive going on in this commandment too. Because it has to reflect what God is doing in the world and who God is. And in Ephesians 4, verse 28, Paul sheds light on this commandment. He says this, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. Do honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Do you hear that? The the purpose, the reason he's telling us don't steal is not just that we might be industrious. It's not just that we might go get a job and be able to provide for ourselves. But the very reason that we are not to steal and we are to get a job is so that we might be a generous giver. Now, why is that? Because that's God. God doesn't just not steal. God doesn't just work. But God's work is one of mercy and grace. The way that it flows is toward His people, toward His church. We receive the blessings and the prosperity of His work. And therefore, we must be a people who are very much like that. So how can we do that? I have been really taken back. Uh, As we started this series on the Ten Commandments, Chris and I were confident this is where God had led us. But I didn't understand why. But I think as they, week after week, we've been unfolding this, it's almost like God is forming our hearts and minds to be the people that God would have us be. And this morning, in the area of do not steal and work and be generous, I don't know that... There can be a more pertinent and and, and practical message to the church today. For us to stand out, for us to shine the glory of God to a watching world, we must understand what's being said here. So let's go to work. And to really get into this, to really understand what God is telling us in the Eighth Commandment, we need to know that we were made to work for God, and that is a game changer. We were made to work for God, and that is a game changer. What I'm saying is this. If you understand that when you go to school, or you go to work, or you do whatever you've been called to do, that you are not working for that boss, you're not working for that teacher, you're not working for your parents, you're not working for any, you're working for God. And that's huge. 
I saw an interview this week with a man by the name of Bill Aris, and uh, forgive me for using this, I bet there aren't five people in here that ran cross country, um, but that was one of my sports in high school, and, and, and it's been my passion. And Bill Aris is uh, the coach of a high school cross country team in upstate New York. And he has won the last nine, his teams have won the last nine national championships. Not state championships, not city or region, we're talking national championships. And I heard an interview with him this week, and most people look at uh, running and cross-country racing as an individual sport, and that's how we approach it. But when asked what the key was to his success, this is what he said. He said, what I do is I try to transcend the individuality of the sport. And selflessness really is one of the key components of our success. They asked him, have you gone out recruiting the best runners? And he said, not really. But what he does is he has a meeting before every practice. And he is drilled into their heads, you are not running for yourself, you're running for your team. And at the last national championship, five, the top five finishers on his team were within 12 seconds of each other which is unheard of in a cross-country race. And he said the reason for that is these girls were unwilling to fall too far behind because they could see their team in front. They were running for the other. Dear friends, we do better when we run for something other than ourselves. We weren't made to live life for us. Paul gives us the higher purpose as believers. In Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Dear friends, if you're burdened with your work, stop looking at your work, stop looking at your boss and look to God. Ephesians 6.7, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Why? Because we are. And man, that's good news, I'm telling you. I've had some awful bosses in my life. I'll never forget, I was working at McDonald's in high school. The McDonald's over on Summer Avenue, in between Graham and, uh, I guess, Waring. And the manager never learned my name. And so, when I was in the back, I was in the kitchen, it was my job to make hamburgers and quarter pounders, and, and I would dress them, you know, I'd, I'd, get the, I'd do the patties and, and put them in the buns and dress them up with ketchup and, you know, all that. And he called me Doug the whole time. <laughs> and I don't know how many times I corrected him, but he never learned my name. After a while, I think he just did it because he hated his job, and for some reason he hated me. He called me Doug. Well, I got him back one day. I was making burgers, and as I was putting a tray of burgers up, I noticed I had ketchup on the exterior of the buns, and I'm like, man, I've got to get a little more you know, clean with the way I'm dressing. So I served them up, they wrapped and put them on, and as I'm making the next batch, I looked down, and I had a cut on my finger. And that wasn't ketchup on those buns going, it, it was... And everything in me in that moment said, I'll show you who Doug is. (laughs) I'll get you. Never told him. There you go. Don't you want to go back to McDonald's now? (laughs) 
That is not how to work for God. (laughs) But isn't that how we are? Oh, I deserve this. You know, you haven't given me a raise. You haven't, you you don't give me, you I'm going to show you, no, no, no. We work for God. We don't work for that boss. I needed to know that. (laughs) And those, the customers needed me to know that too in that time. So how do we get through a tough job? It's by that. It's by knowing that we work for God. But you know what? That's not enough. It's not as if God sits idly by as as a boss with his arms crossed waiting for us to kind of mess up and then he comes down heavy on us. No. Philippians 2, 12-16. Paul wrote this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you. Isn't that beautiful? God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Isn't that beautiful? You know, why do we work? Because God's at work in us. If I had known that, if I had realized that, if I had a Christian view of work, I would not have served those hamburgers up. I would have realized that, hey, yeah, I've got a horrible boss who won't even learn my name, but guess what? God is at work in me. He is teaching me something. And you know what? He's probably humbling me because I'm a pretty cocky teenager. And I probably need it. No, I did need it. It was good for me. He meant it for bad. God meant it for good. Do you see that? That God is always at work, and therefore, if you're mad at your boss, you're not really mad at your boss, you're mad at God. If you're mad at your students, you're not really mad at your students, you're mad at God. If you're mad at whoever it is, if you're mad at your parents, whoever has authority over you, you're not really mad at them, you're mad at God, because He's the one that's put that authority in your life. So see yourself as working for God, and it will free you. Another way that we have to apply this is to understand that we are to be generous. We are to have a mind full of others. I love this. If we don't complain or grumble in our job, no grumbling nor disputing, what happens? You will shine as lights in the world. Isn't that beautiful? You say, how can I be a witness for Christ? Stop complaining. Stop grumbling. Stop being a troublemaker. Do you know how many bosses would rejoice if they had a workforce that did what they told them to do? I mean, do you know that we could change this city, we could change schools, we could, if we just had the right attitude? That's what Paul is saying. It's not preach the gospel. Just stop complaining. Just stop disputing. And shine, therefore, because you're going to stand out if you do that. It's beautiful. And also be generous. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, 
so that you through his poverty might become rich. We're to be generous. We have to work with a mind full of others. We can't just think about our own kingdom. We have to think about those around us. We have to think about their success. If we're an employer, if we're an employee, it doesn't matter. We have to think about those around us. We have to go the extra mile, not just for us to win the best employee of the month, but to lift those around us up, to invest in those around us, to bring them along. Because that's our responsibility, because that's what Christ has done for us. I love this book. Rocky Anthony and T. Shipman led a seminar last time on it. It's Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor. It's a biblical um, world and life view of work. If you've not read it, you need to read it, please. We have a few copies in the back. This is one that will be in the back after the service, or just order it on Amazon or Kindle or however you do it. Um, But we all need a good theology of work. But this is what he said. Our work can be a calling... In other words, more than just a way to get a paycheck. Our work can be a calling only if it's reimagined as a mission of service to something beyond merely our own interest. As we shall see in the book, thinking of work mainly as a means of self-fulfillment and self-realization slowly crushes a person. You know, the loneliest place to be is at the top when you've only worked for yourself. When you've only worked to prove yourself. It's the loneliest place to be. To make a real difference, there would have to be a reappropriation of the idea of vocation or calling, a return in a new way to the idea of work as a contribution to the good of all and not merely as a means to one's own advancement. In a big way, Jesus was seeking to set the rich young ruler free when he told him, one thing you lack, go sell all you have and give to the poor. Why? Because he was working for his own kingdom. It was his idol and therefore he couldn't let it go. And he wanted to free him from that slavery. We were made to work for God and that's a game changer. Secondly, if we're going to obey the eighth commandment, we've got to understand that we were made for work and not for stealing. We were made for work and not for stealing. I had a a friend send me a letter who stole some things and went to jail. And it was a long letter. It was a beautiful letter. Uh, it's one of the most endearing things I've ever read. Uh, one of the most personal notes and letters I've ever read. But the letter dripped with regret. And the reason that it did was because we weren't made for stealing. I found that out early on in life. My parents are here, so you'll have to discipline me later. I don't think I've ever told you this story. Uh, But I was in a little grocery store in our neighborhood back in, I don't know, fifth grade, maybe sixth grade. And I had some new friends, and um, we were walking through the store, and all of a sudden... One of them grabbed some candy and said, here, put this in your pocket. And I did it. And they put candy in their pocket and we walked out. And they were laughing and yet, at that young age, man, I felt like, I felt horrible. And the reason I felt horrible 
was because I wasn't made for that. You see, when you do something that you weren't made to do, God's not going to let you get away with it. Your your conscience is not going to welcome it. You're going to feel the resistance. We were not made for stealing, but we were made for work. Why? The very first words of the Bible, in the beginning, God did what? Created the world. The very first thing we learn about God is He was in the beginning working. He is a working God. He is a philosopher. He's an astrologer. He's a doctor. He's a common laborer. You know how we know that? Because we have a God who got His hands dirty. One of the first things He did was to reach into the dirt that He made and fashioned a man and then breathed life into Him. We have a God who got His hands dirty. Dear friends, there is nothing shameful about laboring physically. There is no working up from that. I mean, yes, should you, if you want to advance, that's great. If you want to become a man, if you, that's great. But the work itself is not shameful because God has done it. And that's a beautiful thing that should free us. He did the first surgery. He reached into Adam and took a rib and fashioned it into Eve. Our God is a worker He's constantly at work. One of the greatest verses that we cling to is God works all things for good for those who love Him and have been called according to His purpose. God is a God who's constantly at work. He never sleeps. He's a productive, honest worker. And His DNA is in our DNA. So much so that we really have a hard time living without work. Listen to what Tim Keller said in his book, Every Good Endeavor. According to the Bible, we don't merely need the money from work to survive. We need the work itself to survive and live fully human lives. Do you hear that? We don't just need money. We need the work. (laughs) Because if you're not working, you're you're not having dignity. If you're going to school and you're not doing your homework, if, if you're not working, if you're not moving, if you're not trying to be productive, then there's no way you're going to find peace. He goes on, work is so foundational to our makeup, in fact, that it's one of the few things we can take in significant doses without harm. Indeed, the Bible does not say we should work one day and rest six, or that work and rest should be balanced evenly, but it directs us to the opposite ratio. Leisure and pleasure are great goods, but we can take only so much of them. (laughs) Do you think working is killing you? Try not to work. (laughs) That's what he's saying, and it's true. We need work to feel purposeful and to have meaning. And we need honest work. I was fascinated this week by an article I came across of a business in Hawaii. It's it's, um, some believers came together and have started this restaurant called Seed. And uh, the Seed restaurant, uh, its mission is to employ those that have not, that either are unemployable or have not been employed for some time. 
And um, it, it targets those getting out of prison who have felonies. Uh, it targets prostitutes. Um, and it targets um, addicts, those who've, who've been living in a life of addiction. Um, the article focused on one woman by the name of Mary Nelson. And she's had... She's only had one job in her life before going and working in the kitchen at Seed, and that job was as a prostitute for 30 years. Well, she became a Christian, came out of that lifestyle, and this is what the article said. Nelson has been known to remind her fellow staffers that what she makes in a month at Seed, she used to make in one night on the streets. She had it all, she tells them. New cars, jewelry, travel, nice condos, though sometimes beatings, rape, and so much horror came with a price. But then the article quotes Mary herself. She said, you can't buy what I'm going through right now. She said, you can't buy what I have right now. I never thought that I would be in Hawaii and be this person that I am now. In other words, the work that I was doing as a prostitute only left me with guilt and shame. And yet working in a kitchen has restored my dignity. Why? Because she is coming in line with what she was made to do. Do you see that? Dear friends, this is a big deal. When I talk to employers... What I hear time and time again is that the people getting out of college with degrees don't know how to work. They expect to immediately be the boss. They expect to immediately be at a level and live at a level that their parents did. It's an epidemic that that no one has taught them how to work. And, and I can tell you exactly what has happened. The baby boomer, boomer generation has made children their idols. And all of life has been centered around little precious Bobby and Susie. And oh, we can't make little precious Bobby and Susie clean the room. We, we can't make them work. We can't, you know, and it, oh, they've got too much homework. We've got to go talk to the teacher. You can't be doing this to my children. And you know what we've done? We've destroyed that generation in a big way. We haven't destroyed them. <laughs> we have damaged them in a big way. And parents, that's a wake-up call this morning. Teach your children to work. That is love. Because you're teaching them what they've been made to do. And dear friends, not just homework. And I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get, man, if I were in the suburbs, I'd be run out. So we're not as nearly there here in this church. But there's a real big extent to which sports can't replace work. And I know there are great benefits from sports. But I'm telling you, there are better benefits to getting up and going to work and getting a paycheck and learning how to manage money and paying for things and learning to be responsible we were having a conversation yesterday and with uh, Amy Catherine and Tom are in town. And Amy Catherine, who's about to graduate from college, told me that, you know, spring break, I think, is this coming week. And one of her friends, you know, said, what are you doing on spring break? And she said, well, we're working. And the friend literally said this, said, Amy, can I tell you something? She said, yeah. Her friend said, let me just tell you, parents love to pay for spring break vacations. 
And that's what she wanted to do. Uh, because she knows me and she knows my wife. She said, Dad, that's what is happening. I think one of the best things that, one of the best gifts that we've given her and other our other daughters is, um, if you want to be in a sorority, that's great, but you've got to work. Uh, if you want to do other things, that's great, but you've got to work. And um, that may sound mean. <laughs> I mean, how can you not be a tridelt? I mean, how can you go to college and not be a fidel? I mean, that is real, people. That is real. But the best gift that we can give is to teach our children to work. Let me move off of that. We also need to understand that because of generational poverty, because of we have many men in Memphis that have felonies, uh, because of the breakdown of the family, because of so many systemic issues that we have people that want to work that can't get work. And we as a body must be attuned to that. Uh, Some of the best work that's going on, uh, I love what Youth Leadership of Memphis is doing, and Steve Taylor's here this morning. He is taking five-year-old boys and teaching them how to cut grass on Saturdays. And dear friends, if you have money that you can give to Youth Leadership of Memphis, you need to do it because they're constantly struggling with money. They are paying these boys to do work and teaching them to manage money. And they are teaching them to work. Some of the best work going on in Memphis right now is at Advanced Memphis, and we have many of the workers and employees here. And we have many people that have been through the Jobs for Life class here. And it is changing lives. Why? Because it's bringing people into and giving them the skills and the opportunities that they've never had to to not only learn how to work, but to get work. And then they're there to help them and support them. And friends, it's not rocket science. It's simply walking with our brothers and sisters. You don't need to have a degree in sociology to do this. All you have to do is care. I was on the phone this week with a friend's boss trying to figure out what the problem was. Where's the issues? I fear he's about to lose his job. And the boss, you know, kind of stuttered, you're who? Well, I'm so-and-so's pastor. Can, can we talk about him? He was like, okay, nobody's ever done that, you know. I mean, I don't know. I, can I legally talk to you about it? I said, I don't care. But friends, that's what we must do. Because if there's a disconnect, if something's going on and we can help, if we can come in and bring some input, then that's what we need to do. Dear friends, we've got to care. I love what Scott Saul says in his book entitled Jesus Outside the Lines, A Way Forward for Those Tired of Taking Sides. He said, the poor in Rome were coldly viewed as useless eaters, a drain on society. But in Christian communities, the poor were treated with dignity and honor. There was a spirit of compassion and generosity, the sharing of wealth to narrow the income gap, which is a progressive or liberal value, but generosity was voluntary, not forced, a conservative value. I once heard someone say that though conservative with their bodies, the early Christians were promiscuous with their wallets. And we could go on. I don't have time to read it all. 
But do you get the point? We have to think Christianly and we have to engage Memphis and our culture. You see, we, we still, not only when we don't go to our jobs or get a job, and we still simply, um, not when we do our jobs, but we still, when we do our jobs and we only do it for ourselves. We are thieves. You see, because Jesus gave us a job description, and this is for all of us, We all have different callings, but we all have this one command, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything to obey everything that I've commanded you. Making disciples is getting involved in people's lives where they are. And then thirdly and finally, I spent too much time on telling you to put your children to work. Children, you can thank me for that later, but thirdly and finally, let's just read Matthew 6. 25, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Dear friends, to work, to, to obey the eighth commandment, when you work, you have to believe that God is the true provider, not you. You have to believe that God is the true provider, not you. What I love about this passage is it's not dealing with laziness, it's dealing with workaholism. You see, workaholism is equally evil as laziness. Now, why is that? Because it it physically models and illustrates an unbelief that you have a heavenly Father that's going to take care of you. And man, I'm preaching to myself right here. Listen to Malachi 3, 6-12. For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore, O children of Jacob. Um, let me read that again. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? In other words, what have the people of God done? How shall we return? Will man rob God? You are robbing me, says God. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. 
Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of the light, says the Lord of hosts. Dear friends, what God is calling us to in work is to trust Him as our Father. He says it's time to quit sometimes. And if you don't quit, what that shows is you're putting record before relationship. What you're doing is saying, I must prove myself. I can't quit. If I don't work harder than anybody else, if I don't show up earlier and and leave later, if I take a day off, if I don't, if I don't, if I do, it all depends on me. And what God says, no, you're acting like an orphan. I'm your father. And when we don't tithe, when we don't give him at least the 10%, then what we're saying is, I've got to protect, I've got to do this. And what God says is, test me. Test me. See if I won't take care of you. I mean, I'm giving you 90%. I'm letting you keep 90%. That's a pretty good deal. (laughs) Give me the 10%. And trust me, it's a spiritual issue. Does God need our money to, to do His work? No. But does God command us to give us Him 10% to do His work? Yes. And so, dear friends, we must do it trusting that our Heavenly Father is going to provide for us. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. So, dear friend, the hope that we have this morning is that Jesus has come to deliver lazy or workaholic people like you and me. That He has come for us to fall into His arms and say, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. I just don't think I can do it. I don't think I can get enough courage to go get a job. I just don't think I can take a day off. I just don't think... Dear friends, trust the Lord. Fall into His loving arms. Obey Him. Drink in His grace. And out of His love, watch Him take care of you. Amen. Father, we thank You for Your love for us. We thank You for Your Word. And God, help us to fall into Your loving arms. Help us to believe that You're a Father that has given us a job to do, to promote Your glory, to extend Your kingdom, to let others see the light of Christ in our integrity, in our love, in our generosity. So God, would You do something in us today that we might be the kind of workers that You would have us be that we might find meaning and significance and you might get glory in Memphis through our labor. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.